So why am I here as the uh, Director of Security of the VNA talking about uh, law enforcement? Uh, for those who have not read uh, my CV, that's because uh, up until 2010, at least, I was um, the head of the Art and Antiques Unit, um, which gave me 10 years of experience. Nothing's working today. There we go. Um, 10 years of experience of dealing with uh, the traffickers of cultural heritage, traffickers of cultural goods. Um, very limited uh, experience of dealing with cultural heritage on site in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, um, but maybe a fair amount um, uh, to, to do with its trade throughout London as one of the largest uh, markets in the world. So there's a shameless plug for the Victoria and Albert Museum. Um, we're very keen, uh, despite the fact we're the world's greatest museum of art, design and performance, to be engaged in this uh, subject. Our director, uh, Martin Rort, is very keen that we um, bring people together, we discuss this issue, that we um, bring museums together as well, and that we share the benefits that we have, uh, and maybe some of the soft diplomacy that museums can offer to try and raise public awareness and bring different partners in uh, together to discuss this and where possible um, take act uh, positive action as well. Good, so um, what I'm going to look at today is the resources that the police have, um, law enforcement I should say, I'll try and touch on uh, border force as well, though there's always been this um, strange difference between the police and uh, border agency, we never got on too well. Um, not over willing to share information at times. Um, I'm going to tell you some stories really uh, about some of the cases that I dealt with which I hope might uh, allow you to look at the way that criminals operate with regards to cultural property. Why they bring the material in, who buys it, uh, what routes it takes, the sort of materials that they, uh, that they bring in and uh, the methods of doing it. Then we'll have a quick look at the limitations on the police and uh, border forces uh, in dealing with these sort of crimes and then a little discussion maybe about uh, how we can work together. So I'm sorry that you've got a retired police officer talking to you about law enforcement um, and the question is why. Well we tried desperately to get a real police officer here um, to do that but it's a Saturday. Uh, they, don't, <laughs> they don't work on Saturdays, it's, it's Halloween. Uh, they weren't very keen on doing that. Uh, and the rugby's on this afternoon, so um, so you got the man who was on the on the committee and therefore uh, didn't have a, a great deal of choice. But I think also there is a reluctance um, from the police and law enforcement to discuss this subject at the moment, which as a retired policeman maybe I can touch on in a little more detail uh, that they can. There's a number of very valid reasons for that reluctance. Um, and then maybe there's some that is a, a concern about committing to an area of crime that they maybe don't have to uh, engage with. There are two types of uh, crimes that the police deal with. There are those that are reported and there are those that are found by the police. Direct action. And cultural heritage crime within the UK is very much the latter. You can compare it maybe to knives uh, or you could compare it to drugs. And... Just to, to give you a very simple example, many years ago I was on a very effective drug squad in a certain borough in London. We had 20 officers who were arresting people, stopping them and searching them, following information, kicking down doors, going into drugs dens and recovering drugs. What this led to was a hot spot for that area for drugs within London that we got told off about because we had more drugs in this borough than anywhere else. 
So the police's solution to that was to close the drug squad down. So you don't look for the problem, you don't search people, you don't kick the doors down, you don't find the drugs. The drug problem in that area went away. Of course, it didn't go away, but this is maybe what the police are doing with cultural heritage crime. If you don't look for it and you don't deploy resources to find it, then you don't have a problem and you don't have to deploy resources there. Um, and so there is maybe a, a little bit of um, concern about discussing this issue. The other one is that sometimes cultural property crime appears very simplistic. There's a recovery of an object in London and every student and journalist is jumping up and down. They want all the details about the inquiry. They want to know everything about it. Very often it's not a simple case. It isn't just one object found with one person who is maybe going to stand trial or not stand trial as the case may be. Very often it's part of a much more complex criminal network and revealing information about those crimes at an early stage is very detrimental to the long-term investigation of that criminal act and the removal of criminal networks or organised networks. So let's look at um, the resources that the police have. If we look at a local level, up until very recently, there were no officers engaged in cultural heritage crime. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, each area was, was charged to have one officer who in his part-time would be trained in some way in art, antiques or cultural heritage crime. When I say specialist teams, there's probably only one left in the country at the moment, and that is my old unit, the Art and Antiques Unit at Scotland Yard. It has two and a half officers uh, in what's called a focus desk. Um, and that's not necessarily a terrible thing. It's not that many, uh, not, not too far for you of the FBI or some of the other units. It is a long way short, as Tim mentioned, of the Carabinieri, who have 320 officers. Not that I was ever jealous uh, and uh, were resentful of the fact that we would conduct investigations for Italy with my two officers getting on a bus and going off and recovering objects while the Italians had 300 officers and tanks and a frigate and a submarine and various other bits and pieces. Uh, and we would be playing around on the bus. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, that team has been there since 1968. Um, it was formed partly as a response to the 1970, or not a response, in, in anticipation of the 1970 uh, UNESCO Convention, and formed about the same time as the Carabinieri. Uh, we always had an argument about who, who came first. And with a short break, it's been there throughout, and it has an amazing database and an amazing amount of information and intelligence about these crimes. But it is now, uh, sadly, a single, a single unit, truly with only the responsibility for London. Um, we do occasionally see cross-border task force. These are, there are, I think, 28 forces now within the UK. And occasionally when issues become relevant across different uh, force areas, or, um, then they will form specialist units to deal with this. There has never been one, to my knowledge, for cultural heritage. Sometimes there is one for high-value art and antiques theft. Uh, National Police and Border Control Units, um, really we don't have one. The National Crime Agency, which does exist, doesn't have a specific remit for cultural heritage crime and hasn't since 2005 when cultural heritage crime was listed as, as part of the National Threat Assessment as the third most profitable means for criminals to raise uh, money. Um, National multi-agency teams, we've got one that I'm going to introduce you to. It's a new one under the NPCC, the National Police Chief Council. And that's, I think, the first step forward that the UK has made in many years and probably the only 
good news part of my presentation, sadly. Um, and then there's Europol and Interpol. Um, Europol no longer have a specific cultural heritage remit. Uh, Interpol do have a small team of officers uh, who collect intelligence and work with NGOs. And again, we'll speak uh, more about that in a second. I keep pressing the wrong button. There we go. So just quickly on the Metropolitan Police Art and Antiques Unit, or Antiquities Unit, it's often called, but technically it was the Antiques Unit. Um, it deals with cultural heritage crime impacted upon London. And truly, this gave us a very wide remit, and it still does now, because London is the art market. It's the second largest art market in the world. I think it's worth 7.2 billion or something like that. There's not a great deal of art and cultural heritage that doesn't in some point impact upon London. And so it gave us a, a wider remit than, than maybe ge geography would suggest. Uh, it works very closely with other international police teams, including the FBI, um, their, their Art Crime Team Act, the CTPC, which is the Carabinieri and the BKA in Germany, also um, the Spanish teams uh, and French teams as well. Um, all market countries, you will note, that tend to be um, working in close collaboration with. We investigate uh, offences, or I still say we, uh, they investigate offences on behalf of foreign states. Um, this is when we get requests from, uh, could be Syria, could be Iraq, uh, more likely to be Turkey and Iran and, and others, that uh, Egypt who ask us to recover um, stolen property uh, on their behalf or to investigate crimes uh, against their state. The important thing about the police is that the police's remit is to focus on criminals and not property. There's very little in the, in the police mantra which says that you should recover property. You're there to investigate crime and criminals um, and not to investigate the art itself. Massive acronym at the top there. There we go. Um, National Police Chiefs Council Heritage and Cultural Property Crime Working Group. Um, and it's even got the old, uh, so it used to be ACPO, for those of you uh, who knew it before. In fact, when this report was uh, issued in 2013, this is the first time that nationally UK police has tried to put something together to coordinate our efforts to protect heritage and cultural property crime. It's led by uh, Andy Bliss, who's the Chief Constable of Hertfordshire, who's a, a trained archaeologist. He did his uh, degree in archaeology. Um, and he has one officer at his disposal. Uh, but what he's done is he's, um, he's gathered together a group of interested parties uh, from English Heritage, uh, the National Trust, uh, myself as a part of the, the VNA, but also as the head of the National Museum Security Group, uh, Border Force, police officers, etc., um, to try and come together and discuss how we can nationally address uh, this issue. Uh, this is a little bit from the strategic objectives. Uh, and you'll notice there for the first time um, that this is a national and international concern. So whenever the police have spoken about cultural heritage crime before, it's always been about removing the proceeds of crime from criminals in the UK, about recovering property in the UK. It, they've never before expressed a desire as a police services um, to help internationally, to stop international trade, not just for national benefit. So that is, uh, that is definitely a step in the right direction um, and one which I'm hoping will attract uh, greater funding and support. One of the things that that will do is start to reintroduce training for police officers in cultural heritage uh, crime. Uh, there will be a proper training schedule 
rolled out to liaison officers in every force um, and then cascaded down um, throughout there and involving the intelligence units as well so that when the intelligence comes in, uh, the officers know straight away uh, what they're dealing with. So just a, a quick word on our friends from Interpol and Europol. Interpol has a fantastic database of stolen art, design and cultural heritage. It has to be unique, it has to be identifiable. It is accessible now to anyone with a, a good reason to be on there. It's not publicly accessible, you have to register. But as a museum or a, a professional, um, you can register if you give a reasonable excuse and they will allow you to, to access the database. Um, it, is, it is a cumbersome system, but it's, but it's changing um, and it's not used enough. Um, and I keep hearing pleas for, let's have a new database. We need all of this data. Actually, what we need is to use the, the, the data we already have. Um, at one point, Europol tried to start a European database of cultural heritage when we had an Interpol one for international. Um, why, why would you do that? Uh, and a huge amount of European funding was invested in developing a database that, in my opinion, was, uh, was superfluous. And um, the Interpol system should be used. It's a, a reliable database that takes genuinely stolen known to be illicit material keeps it current and up to date and makes it accessible to be to be checked against um, interpol are also the ngo liaison point they work very closely with unesco with icon with icromos uh, with blue shield uh, and the and the others uh, organizing working groups and conferences what they don't do is have any operational capability so ignore Hollywood again, and Da Vinci Code. Um, an Interpol detective will not come flying down on a rope uh, to rescue cultural heritage. They have no operational capacity whatsoever. They uh, act as a, an intelligence hub to feed intelligence out to other operational units who can then uh, take executive action as required. They work closely with ICOM to produce the Red Lists uh, and UNESCO. Okay, so as I said at the beginning, when we're looking at the criminal methods, the police don't talk about a lot of current cases, but what I wanted to do, um, and a current case can take five or ten years, in fact some of the cases that I inherited when I came into the team in 2000, uh, I still know my successor there now, they're still live, um, so, and I was there ten years, so they sometimes can be more than ten years old, but there is a reason why they're reluctant to talk about them in detail. Um, there is a need to protect the methods that were deployed sometimes in recovering these works and also to allow us to pursue criminal networks completely. And again, this can take years. If you take from the art world the example of the Turners that were stolen and then recovered by the police, one of them was recovered many months, if not a year or so, ahead of the other one, but no one was told about it uh, because obviously to have done so would have jeopardised the recovery of the last one. And with cultural heritage, it's very similar in, in very many occasions. What I hope we can do over the next few minutes is learn from some of the past experience we had of dealing with the illicit trafficking of goods from Afghanistan and from uh, Iraq um, during earlier years. So whilst I was on the Art and Antiques World, we saw material like this. This is a, a Buddhist stupa from Afghanistan. Uh, 225 pieces of this numbered uh, and sent through to the UK. Um, the methods employed at the time was that the material coming out of Afghanistan would always come through Peshawar in Pakistan, uh, that it would be posted to, uh, to the UK, um, and that there would be a distance created in, in doing so. In other words, the person who received it would say, well, I never asked for it, I didn't know what it was if they, if they were caught with it. 
This particular sample was sent over as tile samples valued at £1,500. So that's what it says on the packet. Now what you have to remember here is that when customs agents or police officers intercept this, they don't actually know it's any different. They think that is £1,500 of mock tile samples for someone's bathroom or what, what have you, um, because they're not trained and they never have been trained in doing so. In doing so. And so consequently, they were able to ship tons and tons of equipment. Um, I seized within a period of three years, there about three and a half to four tons of material coming in from Afghanistan. Uh, you can see here some of the sample. This is just tiny sections. This material was coming through in huge metal sari boxes, um, crammed in, thrown in, not properly wrapped, not preserved, just bits of old newspaper, sometimes wrapped up. Uh, and tipped into these uh, big containers. So you can see there uh, some of the diversity of the weaponry. I mean, people who've looked at this say, you know, the, these can't have all come from one, the one site. They've come from many different sites. Uh, tons of arrowheads and spearheads and jewellery. Um, coins, pots, seals. The Indus Valley seals there on the, the bottom left were uh, quite a find in, at their, in their time. Um, and you can see here this uh, this um, Gandharan pot. You, you can probably just see, but it's still full of mud. Um, they didn't clean it out in any way, shape, or form. So again, those of you who've watched television will be thinking, "Well, that's easy. They can get soil samples from the mud, and that will take them back to the site in Afghanistan, and the case will be solved in half an hour in time for tea and biscuits." Um, <laughs> I actually sent soil samples off to the Geological Society and various others for analysis and was very excited when I got this 20-page report coming back which said, yes, you're right, this soil could come from this particular area of Afghanistan. Unfortunately, it could also come from Berlin, Stuttgart, London, <laughs> Surrey. Um, so it didn't give me a, a great uh, evidential uh, trail, unfortunately. We, we were also watching very carefully the... Um, uh, the value of some of these items, the impact that this quantity has upon um, the value on the London art market. Some of these compartmented seals here in the middle, these bronze ones, when we first started looking at them, when the trades first was going, they were 90 to 120 pounds each. Um, by the time we finished in the same market, you could buy three of them for 10 pounds. Uh, there, there was that much material coming in, and I, I doubt we were touching uh, a fragment of it. Um, not just small items, but uh, monumental items as well, some of them damaged during transport and during examination. Um, one very sad case where our colleagues in Border and Customs Agency thought that, well, it's a stone head, it comes from Afghanistan, therefore it must be drugs. Um, so drilled holes in it with a blunt Black & Decker drill. Uh, anyway, so um, I'm going to speed up a bit. Uh, lessons from Afghanistan. Um, they used established routes, the routes that have been used for drugs and guns in the past, and probably the same people involved in it. They created false provenance, false history for the items to bring them in. They used transit points they never came from the source country. They created distance by using delivery companies. Uh, they flooded the market and prices dropped. And despite the abundance of this material, nearly every load we had had been cut with fakes and forgeries. Almost, you would think, not worth the effort. Um, the lessons we should learn, 
in Afghanistan, we were too slow to create a red list. The police and customs agents had no idea what they were looking for until it was too late. This happened very quickly. Um, there was minimal amount of press about Afghanistan, certainly around the illicit uh, excavation. The museum, Kabul, got some mention. There was no timely reaction from Interpol and no specific legislation or guidelines. This is from Iraq a few years later. Same sort of material came in in the same ways, using routes that had been established before, came through Jordan on the majority of occasions that we identified. Um, we saw material coming in from illegal excavations, from museums, from storage facilities and from libraries. There's a book there for Al-Razi, uh, 11th century book, which came in from, uh, from one museum. We also saw some fairly large monumental items coming in. Uh, the Assyrian relief there on your left-hand side. Um, Wing June is picking the uh, sacred fruit. That was at the time, I think, valued about three and a half million pounds. Uh, that was taken from a storage facility uh, from the North Northwest Palace. This this was on display. This was found actually by the Artlosh Register first. They notified us of this, and I went to speak to the dealer that had uh, put it up for a search. And he sits in a very grand office down in the basement of his Mayfair um, Mayfair shop and. Uh, He's sitting there at his big mahogany desk and behind him is a big velvet curtain. And I said, slid this paper across and said, have you ever seen this? And he said, no, I've never seen that before in my life. And I looked behind him and I thought, that's just about the same shape as that curtain behind you. I said, it's behind you, isn't it? And he said, oh, yes, sir, that one. He says, yes, I forgot about that. <laughs> the head of uh, Medusa from Hatra, that was in the front window of a Mayfair shop. So not even hiding the fact that they're, uh, they're, they're, they're selling these sort of items. So the difference between that material and the material I'm showing now was they came from conflict zones. They came from places where traditional police methods couldn't be deployed. We couldn't get forensic evidence. We couldn't get statements to say this object has come from here or it's come from there. Others that we've been successful with from, from Turkey, from all the way all over the place here, have allowed us to go back to that country and say, for example, with the Minbar doors, we took casts of the hinges and that allowed them to compare them to the holes in the ground from the original site. Or we could find the tiles and we could uh, go back to the original um, village in, in uh, southern Turkey and they were able to provide evidence of when those tiles had been in place. You can't do that if you're in the middle of a, a conflict when you've got no means of communicating with them. In Iraq we had some through the US Marines and through Matthew Bogdanus and others who were there. So from Iraq, we learned that they were the same routes that were used before. Uh, there was false provenance and transit points. For the first time, they started to use the internet to save the need for transporting goods and the risk of being caught, but instead to sell it uh, by images on the internet. The antiquities trade is not wholly honest. I say that. I could give you a story about that, but I'm running out of time, so sadly I won't be able to. Shall I tell it anyway? Okay, so we decided we'd test the trade. Um, it was going to be non-evidential. Uh, we put an uh, undercover police officer in, pretending that he was, in fact, recently returned from Iraq in the army. Uh, we gave him a suntan and a short haircut. Um, <laughs> and uh, we gave him a big bag of antiquities that were fakes, but were very convincing fakes, uh, assisted greatly by the British Museum. And we even put the number, the IM number, from the Iraq Museum on some of the objects. And we wanted just to see, is the trade honest or is it not? Um, and it's not. <laughs> That's, I, I probably don't need to say much more than that, other than that one of us told, one of them said that they had so much of that stuff they couldn't cope with anymore. 
Uh, and another said, I can't possibly buy it with that number on it. What you need to do is go home and do this. And they taught us how to take the number off. Then they'd be interested in buying it. So I can say with all certainty that there's parts of the trade that are, that are not honest. And this is not to cast uh, doubt on the legitimate trade, of which, of course, uh, there, there are many. And again, they always cut with fakes and forgeries. Um, with Iraq, we had a different situation. There was an emergency red list. Police officers and customs were made aware of it much more quickly. They were able to act. We were able to recover things. Significant press. Um, there was some crime scene preservation because we had people like Matthew McDonald in the museum and Donnie George still working there. There was an Interpol expert working group which formed of, from people, archaeologists and museums, working together with a police unit called the Interpol Tracking Task Force. The idea of this was quite simple, really. Experts tell the police where to look, where to go, where to concentrate their efforts. And there was specific legislation introduced for Iraq, which may not have proved hugely successful, but at least raised uh, awareness amongst the trade. Um, there's, some, there's limitations. The, the difficulty with all of these cases is that we're, the, the police have to investigate things. You need the same standard of proof as you do for any other crime. How do you prove that those bronze objects have been stolen from Afghanistan since a certain date, when they've come out of Peshawar, or those objects in Jordan, uh, in, from Iraq, have come from Jordan on a certain date. It's, it's impossible. It, it really is, unless you've got the evidence of those things. It's when you've got them coming from a museum or from a recognised site, you have a chance. The, sadly, the case is lost. If the police in the UK are dealing with archaeological items, you really have no case and only a limited possibility to get those objects back. Um, what we need to do more is, is we need a great deal more interagency cooperation. Uh, we want to work more, the police need to work more with their partners in humanitarian, business, trade and media. There needs to be an improvement of intelligence sharing, I think, uh, and also coordination. I know Peter Stone, who I'm hoping you'll meet later on, has a, a recommendation to have a national coordinated coordination agency, and I think that is absolutely essential for this. There are a lot of people wanting to do things um, to help that are unfortunately maybe duplicating efforts and not making best use. Um, I'm not even going to mention that because I know I've run out of time. Um, so I shall hand over at that point, I think. So.